We'll come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Just the last verse of chapter 6 and headed into verse chapter 7. It's on page 475 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. And when you found that, would you stand with me? Read for us this passage together. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, Solomon writes this. For who knows what is good for a man in life? During the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but in the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is Hebel. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. This is God's word. may be seated. Let me pray for us, ask God's blessing now on this time in his word. Living God, we come now to your living word and ask you to speak to us, to come by your Spirit and minister to our hearts in exactly the way that we need them to be ministered to. This is a passage that is difficult, that is all over the place, and yet I believe that you have a specific word to speak to each one of us, that you've drawn us here for a purpose this morning, and you tell us in your word that when you send it out, it doesn't return to you void, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us this morning? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. It's been a number of years now since it's happened, and so maybe I'm just healed. I don't know. But it used to be that I was the absolute worst when it came to choosing a drink at 7-Eleven or at the gas station or whatever it was. And the reason is because I took forever to choose something. I would just stand in front of that drink cooler for sometimes like 
10 minutes or more, just, oh, no, 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 just weigh, comparing different options, weighing the strengths and weaknesses of a, a Coke over a Red Bull over a whatever. I just took forever. Meanwhile, my friends had already chosen what they wanted, gone through the line, and were standing outside, banging on the window, Parker, pick something, and let's go, or we're leaving without you. Comparison can sometimes be paralyzing to us. Or think about the, the, in a day and age where social media gives us access to, into people's lives. It gives us the ability to compare our stuff with the stuff everybody else has with an unprecedented way. Now, just at any time we want, we can just look and see, what do you have? Is that better than what I have? can lead us to both a, a, either a pride-fueling desire or a soul-crushing desire. I believe it was U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt who is most often credited with saying the well-known axiom, pride, or sorry, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And I think most of us would agree that many times that, that's absolutely the case. But for all the dangers and, and ditches that lie on either side of something like comparison, it needs to be said, comparison is also something good. It's something we need in our lives. In fact, it's essential even to our existence. And one big reason for that, among many other things, is that comparison is an integral part of any decision-making process we make, right? It's what enables us to determine whether or not this path, this, this choice, this opportunity is superior to this one or not. It's how we know. And those of you in here who are old enough or who appreciate Older movies will remember a scene out of the first Matrix film, arguably the only truly great film out of the series, where Morpheus sits across the table from Neo, offering him the chance to understand what the Matrix truly is. And as he hands, holds out his hands in front of him with these two pills, he says this, This is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill. And the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I mean, in a scenario like that alone with these two profound choices in front of him, think about it. Without comparison, without being able to weigh the relative strengths and weaknesses of either option, how could Neo even make a choice like that? So we see we need comparison. We're continuing in this series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes called The Chasing After the Wind. And after what we looked at last week in particular about where it is that we can truly look to find satisfaction in our lives, namely in Jesus himself, in the very last verse of chapter 6, which we stopped just short of, we see Solomon asks a question. Look with me there at Verse 12 again of chapter 6, he says, Who knows what is good for a man in life during his few and meaningless days as he passes through like a shadow? And what follows in these 14 verses, the beginning of chapter 7, is really essentially it's Solomon's answer to that question of what is good for a man during his few vapor-like days under the sun. But if you look closely, if you were listening as we read through that, you'll see that the way Solomon gives that answer is to list a, a, a series of comparisons. They're all comparisons is how he answers the question. 
holding out one choice beside the other and telling us what his conclusions were as he compared those things. So if we could just borrow that picture from that opening scene of the Matrix and, and just lay it over our text here like a template. If we see more, uh, Solomon is like an ancient Morpheus standing there with his long, you know, black mandress. And he is coming to us, showing us, telling us that blue pill thinking, that to take the blue pill means uh, escaping, ignoring, numbing the realities of life. If that's what taking the blue pill means, then throughout his entire analysis, his entire comparison, Solomon is absolutely telling us, hey, hey, take the red pill. You, you should take the red pill. Open our eyes to the truth that we so often struggle to face. Why? Because in doing that, we discover the way to know and experience what is truly good for us in our few and fleeting days under the sun. And in order to see how Solomon leads us now to do our own comparative analysis so that we too might choose wisely, I want to lead us through here. Look at three comparisons that Solomon makes here as he walks us through, each with his own blue and red pill option. I want to show you the first day and the last, a wise rebuke and a fool's praise, and then patient hope and hopeful nostalgia. And then we'll close out our time by looking at what Solomon calls the shelter of wisdom. Okay, so those three comparisons, the first day and the last, a wise rebuke and a fool's praise, patient hope, hopeful nostalgia, close by looking at the shelter of wisdom. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, follow along with me, as Solomon leads us to compare and then choose what is truly good during our days under the sun. So let's look first of all at the first day and the last. The first day and the last. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 7. Solomon says here, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, the first half of that verse, most of us are pretty good with. You know, we can kind of see, yes, having good character, a better name, that's, that's better than sort of a cheap facade, a kind of dressed up, made up facade. Having a good name, that's that's better. And yet, the second half of that verse, as well as what Solomon goes on to say in verse 2 and 3, we probably need a little bit more explanation to understand just what Solomon is trying to get at here. First of all, let's begin by just reading again what he said in those following verses. Verse 2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. Now, first of all, no. no. Solomon is not a, a, a miserable Grinch sitting up on the mountain looking down at all the Who's and Whoville, just like angry that they're so happy and wants everyone to be as miserable as he is. That, that's not what's going on here. Nor is this, if you look at the second half of verse 2, you see that Solomon, when Solomon talks about the day of death and the resulting funeral that takes place, that's the house of mourning, He's not talking there about our own death, but someone else's. You see, that's why he says there, the living should take this to heart. He's saying, you should learn something yourself from this, from someone else's day of death. And what he's saying here, big picture, is that all of us, we have something to learn from others around us as we go through this life. And it means what we learn from someone's death 
It's just greater. It's superior to what we learn from the day of their birth. Why? Well, because both events cause us to ask different questions. Right? When, when a child is born, we're primarily looking forward. We're, we're guessing. Right? We're asking kind of questions. What kind of person will that child, might they become? What kind of uh, things might they learn in life? What kind of opportunities will they have? What, what things might they accomplish or qualities that they might have? At death, well, it's just the opposite, right? Now, now we have however many years that person has lived in order to answer those questions that we were asking at birth. So now we're asking instead what kind of person they became, what, what kind of things they did accomplish in life, and what kind of qualities they did possess in life. Author Stephen Meyer says it this way, We don't dwell on human mortality or weakness. We don't say to a person next to us at a baby dedication, he's going to die someday, you know. In fact, just the opposite. We, we speculate about the newborn's future fame and glory. Our, our hopes and dreams run free. That is not the case at the day of death at the house of mourning. Then the mood is thoughtful, contemplative. The fact of human mortality is plain. You can ignore it and refuse to deal with it, but the death of a friend or a relative is the best time to face the grim reality. Every funeral anticipates our own. And that is the first red pill that Solomon hands out to us and asks us to swallow. To be honest about what he's already mentioned now a number of times in the book of Ecclesiastes, namely that a focused reflection on the end, on our death, is a good thing. It's not being morbid. It's actually essential and incredibly instructive. Death is a powerful preacher, says Solomon. And considering its inescapable reality actually teaches us far more about the value of life and how to truly live it than swallowing the, the blue pill, which is attempting to just ignore and, and escape the reality that's facing us anyway. How does death do that? Well, primarily by removing the illusion of control as well as unlimited time from our thinking. Think about it. How many of us in our youthful or even grown-up ignorance have put off necessary change, have let opportunities pass by, refused accountability, all with the rationale, you know what, I'll get to that later. Or I'll think about that kind of stuff when I'm older, yeah. And yet, even this past week when we saw this horrific accident in Humboldt, Saskatchewan, took the lives of 15 boys between the ages of 16 and 21 and their coach. Death is no respecter of age. As James says, how do you know what will happen tomorrow? We don't know. So in one sense, Solomon's words here are really a poetic retelling of Moses' instruction in Psalm 90, where he says, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom, which is always a good thing for it, because rather than, again, we've said this many times, rather than stealing joy from us, being honest about the inevitability of the day of our death teaches us how to truly enjoy our lives now to the full. So that's the first day and the last. Next comparison Solomon makes for us is a wise rebuke and a fool's praise. A wise rebuke and a fool's praise. Look with me at verse 5 now. Solomon says this, It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. 
Now, there's a number of different ideas about what Solomon's getting at there when he talks about the song of fools. Some believe that he's just talking about foolish praise, sort of a flattery that others would give you. Song of fools. Others believe that he literally means that overly loud song fest that you and your friends begin to partake in when you're no longer able to count how many pints you've had to drink that night. But either way, whatever it is, when you include Solomon's description in verse 6 about the loud, quickly passing laughter of fools, because that's what happens when you burn thorns instead of logs, they burn loudly and very quickly. I think it's clear what Solomon is describing here is the very alluring, the very desirable distraction that, come on, all of us have fallen prey to at one time or another, of of seeking uh, parties, seeking entertainment, seeking flattery, that that's the thing we often go to when we're faced with the difficult realities of life. That's the place we run to first, to be distracted, to be entertained. Think about it. Uh, uh, Your girlfriend, your boyfriend breaks up with you. Uh, You get fired from your job, or you can't find a job when you want one. Someone dies unexpectedly, you're struggling with difficulties in your marriage. Whatever it is, when the ground falls out from beneath our feet, most of us, our knee-jerk reaction is to try to to push as much uh, um, alcohol, prescription and non-prescription drugs, uh, sex, parties, concerts, Netflix binging, uh, road trips, shopping, whatever it is, we try to push as much stuff into that hole to cover it up, to cover it over so we don't have to look at it. Anything to distract us from having to actually look at that painful, uncomfortable situation and deal with it. And listen, can we just be real with each other this morning? Let's, let's be honest and, and admit, in the moment... Those distractions, that entertainment, that numbing, for the most part, those things are enjoyable. They're super fun. Of course they are. They'd have to be. Otherwise, no one would ever choose them. No one would ever seek after those things. They are enjoyable. And yet, the point is, just like those thorns burning under the pot, they are also incredibly short-lived pleasures. The house of pleasure is always closed the next morning. And now, the next morning, now you still have to deal with the same pain and wreckage that you didn't want to look at yesterday. It's still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. Only now, you've, got a, you've added all this way more pain, misery to your situation. And maybe even a really dumb tattoo. I don't know. The red pill now of truth that Solomon hands us to swallow after another night of blue pill escapism is this. It is always better to heed wisdom's rebuke. Always. Now, no, this isn't necessarily being rebuked because you did something wrong. This could, this could also just be, um, you know, a, a certain way of thinking, uh, just listening to wisdom's warning before you make a foolish choice. But it's listening to wisdom's calling out to us Knowing that it could also, yes, include something, a choice that you know you've needed to, you needed to make, a change you've needed to make and you haven't. Wisdom's rebuke saying you need to change this now, today, to listen to wisdom's rebuke. The point is, heeding a wise man or woman's rebuke is better for us. Because although the circumstances that we're facing don't change, we still have to face the same difficult stuff. 
But by facing those circumstances, instead of shielding and hiding ourselves from looking at them and following the correction of people that truly love us, the outcome is often dramatically different. Dramatically different. We actually move towards healing and restoration now as opposed to just taking yet another trip around the cul-de-sac. So take a moment. Think about your own life. Think about your own patterns this morning. What is that wound? What is that deep hurt that you continue to feed? What is that thing you're so terrified to face that you continue to try to cover it over and fill it in with all kinds of different things? Have you noticed that each morning when you wake up, the hole is empty again? It needs to be filled? Maybe you already know what you need to do to break out of that cycling. You just haven't taken that step yet today. Maybe today could be the day you finally make the commitment to take that step, to break out of that cycle. Or maybe... Maybe the step you need to take today is to finally share that hurt with that spouse, with that friend, with that counselor, to share it, to open it up and say, this is what I'm going through, and then build some accountability with that person so that you can actually have a plan to break out of it, regardless of what it is, regardless of what step you need to take. Maybe could today be the time when we finally heed wisdom's rebuke? Isn't it exhausting filling up that wheelbarrow again to dump into the hole? Aren't you tired of doing that? Maybe today could be the day we finally break free of that cycle by heeding wisdom's rebuke. Interestingly, if you look at what Solomon says in verse 7 there about extortion turns a wise man into a fool, a bribe corrupts the heart, I think what he's talking about there is also different types of rebuke as well, actually. It's just a kind of rebuke that doesn't help. Think about extortion. That's a type of rebuke. It's, only, it's a rebuke made with intimidation instead of wisdom. Make this change or you're going to pay for it. Bribery, that's also a form of rebuke. But it's a rebuke made with manipulation instead of wisdom. Make this change and I'll make it worth your while. But you see Solomon says, no, both those types of rebuke, they're also foolishness. It is only a wise man's rebuke. That is the rebuke of someone that cares more about you than about getting a certain result from you that can actually bring about change. That's the only thing that's good in the end. That kind of rebuke is always going to be better because it actually has the power to change, to break the cycle. So we've seen the comparisons of the first day and the last, and then now a wise rebuke and a fool's praise. The last comparison Solomon gives us is between patient hope and hopeful nostalgia. Patient hope and hopeful nostalgia. If you look at the first half of verse 8, Solomon says, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now, if that sounds familiar... It's because it's very, like, very much like what Solomon already said back in verse 1 about the day of death being better than the day of birth. But remember, the reason he said that is because the last day just has more to teach us than the first day. And I think that's exactly what Solomon is getting at here as well. Because, of course, in order to experience, in order to benefit from the wisdom that comes in our latter years, we've got to be patient in order to get there. We've got to wait in order to get to that place where we can actually benefit from it. That's why Solomon goes on in verse Second half of verse 8, to say, 
Patience is better than pride. It's better than pride. And well beyond the, the foolishness of pride alone, which foolishly presumes to have wisdom and knowledge that it has not yet attained, we see in verse 9, Solomon says, another result of pride is that we're easily provoked to anger and frustration. We're, we're annoyed all the time. Presumably because, either because we recognize our lack of wisdom and we're just, we, we're, not, we're so impatient that we don't want to wait to actually attain it, or more often because we don't recognize our lack of wisdom, and so we fly off the handle whenever things don't work out like we planned again. Helpfully in verse 10, Solomon gives us an example, if you look there, about what such an impatient pride could look like. Picturing someone ruefully asking, why were the old days better than these? Which, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, might immediately draw to mind that picture of the Israelites. Days after being rescued from slavery in Egypt, they'd crossed the Red Sea on dry land and watched it swallow up the Egyptian army. Still, crying out to Moses, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Really? But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Which is just the problem with nostalgic statements like this, isn't it? They're always, they just tend to be painfully reductionistic. And they forget, they're forgetful of all the negative stuff that went along with all the good memories that they sort of remember. Derek Kidner, commenting on verse 10, writes this. To sigh for the good old days is doubly unrealistic. A substitute not only for action, but for proper thought. Stephen Meyer says it like this. Solomon now warns us against what the Roman poet Horace called laudato temporis acti, the, the praise of the past. This happened, he goes on, in the latter years of the Roman Empire when everyone whined about the good old days of the Republic. The man or woman who wants to resurrect what is dead and gone gives evidence of a desire for easy answers. And such a desire could easily lead to anger over things that cannot be helped or changed. Anger is often associated with such foolish longing. End quote. And beyond that, given the way Solomon began the, the, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, declaring what has been will be again. There, there's nothing new under the sun. It's little wonder that his commentary at the end of verse 10 is that such questions it's not even wise to ask them to begin with. I'll always remember a story my parents uh, shared one time. They were leading a, a Sunday school class at camp that I was a part of. It was about this young boy. He's walking through the woods, and he comes across a chrysalis that is broken open as a butterfly is trying to make its way out. And as he watches this butterfly struggling to get out, he, he sees it push and, and struggle, many times seem to actually be stuck, like it can't get out. And so in love, the boy takes his pocket knife and just gently cuts back some of the edges of the chrysalis so that the, the butterfly can make its way out. And indeed, that's what happens. The butterfly pushes its way out now much more easily and soon is freed from the pod. And then just a few moments later, the boy's father comes along, and, and when he tells his father how he helped, he can see from the father's expression that that may not have been the case. Do you see how the butterfly is 
crawling around on the ground and not flying, the father asked his son. That's because the butterfly needs that time to patiently push and struggle its way through the opening of the chrysalis so that all the fluid can be pushed into the outer extremities of its wings. Then the wings need to dry, and then only then can the butterfly fly. This butterfly's wings will never work now. It will never be able to fly. The purpose of that story was to illustrate another principle my parents often tried to impart on us as children, namely, anything that's worth having in life, anything worth having apart from our salvation, it requires work and it requires waiting. It takes time. Or as Solomon puts it there in the second half of verse 8, patience is always better than pride. The last red pill of truth that Solomon hands to us and asks us to swallow is this. If you want to know what is good for a man during his fleeting vapor-like days under the sun, patiently wait for what God is trying to work out in you. Patiently wait for what he's trying to work out in your situation. Patiently wait for what he's working out in the world. Blue pill thinking. Blue pill thinking is always just impatient and then angry when things don't go as quickly or according to its own plan and then just retreats into solace, solacing itself with some sort of a hopeful nostalgia that things were probably better in the past anyways. What are you longing for God to complete in you? What's that situation that you've been praying for weeks, months, maybe years that hasn't worked out yet, you haven't seen the end of it yet? What is that weakness that you're longing for God to finally redeem? The path of wisdom Solomon is laying out for us here as he's imploring us Wait, wait, be patient for God's perfect timing. He hasn't forgotten you. The end, remember, is always better than the beginning. In fact, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul repeats almost this exact same idea, stating to us plainly, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion till the day of Christ Jesus, that is, the last day when we are finally made perfect. Look with me now at verse 11 following, and we'll close with this this morning as we look at what Solomon calls the shelter of wisdom. The shelter of wisdom. Now, let's see what he says here. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of the possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. There's a lot going on here. But verse 11 in particular seems to be a direct answer to what Solomon's question was back in chapter 6 and verse 12. Remember he asked, what is good 
for a man during his few mist-like days. Solomon's answer here is that what is good to seek, what is good to find during our fleeting days under the sun is wisdom. That's what we should be seeking to find, wisdom. That wisdom is something that can truly benefit us, just like an inheritance, which, remember, is something we only receive at the end of someone's life. And I think he presents wisdom here in two ways, both as a benefit as well as something that God has ultimate control over. It's a benefit because, as he says in verse 12 there, just like having a lot of money can be a kind of shelter to us in this life, so too is wisdom a shelter to those who seek it, to those who seek to live under it and according to its principles. Which, listen, that's good news for those of us who don't have a whole lot of money but still need that protection in life. And it's also good news for those of us who do have financial means right now, but who also realize that all that is temporary, that it's Hebel, that it will can pass away in a moment, and it's God's good gift to us. But this wisdom, remember, is also under God's control. It's just to say, we don't, we don't get to take hold of the steering wheel of wisdom. It's God's. He's the one, the owner and the giver of it, which means, listen, we're, we're passengers in God's family vehicle. We don't, we don't tell him where to go or how fast to drive. We're just blessed to be along for the ride. Which means, like Solomon says there in verse 14, our response must be, in good times, when times are happy, to say, God, I trust that you're in control. I trust that you're in control right now. Praise you for this gift. But also in bad times, times when things don't work out like we hoped or as quickly as we hoped, that our response must also be, I trust you're in control, God. I trust you're you're driving this ship, and so I I don't need to be stressed out. I don't need to be stressed because the ship isn't going as fast or as slow as I want, or because I I don't get to hold the steering wheel or push the brakes. I trust that you're in control. It means we approach the gift of God's wisdom during our days under the sun with both gratitude because of the shelter that it provides for us, but also humility, understanding that God isn't looking for our suggestions. He's not asking for us to add our wisdom to His so the situation can finally work out. He knows what is best. We need to patiently wait for Him to work out what He's going to work out for us. And think of it, when you compare the picture Solomon gives us of what is offered in a gift like God's wisdom. When you compare that with the escapism, the blue pill thinking of our world, which has no real long-term answers to the questions of of pain, suffering, and grief. I think we see the picture of life and goodness that Solomon presents here as truly worthy of our choosing. For look, he adds, second half of verse 12, even more than protection, Wisdom also offers preservation. Preservation to the one who has it. You see, he says, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says almost this exact same thing. We read this already this morning. Listen to what he says. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of us were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 
It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, listen, who has become for us wisdom from God. You hear that? Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is, now he defines it, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Surely, all who place their hope in Jesus, who you see Paul said there, has become the wisdom from God. He's become wisdom personified. That when you get Jesus, you get that wisdom that gives us protection and preservation. All who find their hope in Jesus find life, find protection and preservation both now as well as on the last day when our lives come to an end. It's a gift of profound love, profound grace that is truly beyond compare.